1: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So West Point, the U.S. Military Academy, has produced several great men, distinguished men who had a profound impact on American history, but there was one class in particular that produced several great leaders that had a profound impact on America's success during World War II, as well as shaping America in the post-war years. That was the class of 1915. So of the 164 graduates that year, 59 attained the rank of general, and the two most famous were Dwight Eisenhower and Omar Bradley, who both became five-star generals. So today on the podcast, we have Michael Haskew. He wrote a book called West Point 1915, Eisenhower, Bradley, and the class the stars fell on. And Michael and I discuss what was it about this class, the class of 1915, that it allowed it to produce so many great military leaders in the same amount of time. It's a really fascinating discussion and a fascinating book, so let's do this. Michael Haskey, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be
1: here. Okay, so your book is about the graduating class of West Point in 1915, and in the subtitle, you call it the class the stars fell on. What made this class different from previous and subsequent West Point classes?
0: Well, there there are a couple of things that I think are really important about this class, uh, even prior to the fame that these guys achieved later on in their military careers. First of all, uh, the class of 1915 at the time was the largest class in West Point history. West Point was already over 100 years old, was founded in 1802, and this class um, was significantly larger than any that had come in before. And in the end, by the time they reached graduation in June of 1915, the number of graduating um, seniors in the class was 164. And of that 164, 59 actually in their career achieved a rank of Brigadier General or higher. And in the class through the years at West Point, there was about um, a little over a 40% attrition rate. So a number of people that started with the class didn't make it all the way to graduation. So... First of all, it was a, a, the largest in history. And then afterward, these men and then the events that uh, that unfolded in the years after they graduated came together um, to really set this class apart due to the number of individuals who achieved brigadier general or higher in rank. There's never been a class before or since that's done that.
1: Hmm. And it was – I think that was interesting because I guess the, the way they did enrollment changed that year, right? Is that what happened? Wow, was so a little
0: big. bit. Yeah. The, the congressmen uh, were allowed to make more than one appointment and uh, it did change the numbers somewhat. That's right.
1: Okay. So what was West Point like in 1915? Because it's sort of a, a, an interesting time in military history because you're making that transition from how we did warfare for you know over a hundred years to modern warfare. Um, Did West Point change their curriculum any to reflect modern warfare, or do they sort of stick to the same curriculum they did back in the 19th century?
0: Well, about that time, the curriculum at West Point was heavily weighted toward engineering. Uh, West Point was known then and still is as one of the, one of the great engineering schools in the country. But at the time, if you look at the curriculum, uh, there were topics that are still con- uh, that would be considered um, kind of anachronistic. For example, hippology: how do you take care of a horse? Uh, cavalry. Um, tactics and those types of things, and this was in an era where technology had advanced to the point where um, mechanization was becoming more and more of a standard over time. Um, of course, armies around the world still depended on the horse for transportation in a large part, but the horse as a um, as a cavalry um, transportation vehicle. Uh, was becoming outmoded. Uh, it it was certainly kind of anachronistic at the time, and so the the curriculum at West Point was in transition as well. But in in my opinion, based on what I've seen, it was a slower transition than you might expect, particularly by the summer of 1915, when a war had been raging in Europe for more than a year. Um, or about a year, let's say. Um, so the curriculum was still heavily weighted toward engineering, toward mathematics, uh, but it carried that feel of an older bygone era with it through the, uh, uh, the care of horses, the, the tactics that surrounded cavalry, um, some of the things that dated back to the Civil War as far as uh, the tactical use of, uh, of military formations is concerned.
1: If I remember correctly, at that time, they built, like, this really giant stable or a place where they could ride horses around it. They
0: did. They did. West Point, right at the time these guys reported um, in 1911, uh, was in the midst of a major building campaign. And one of the things that they built was a riding hall. It's just an immense riding hall that was used for um, cavalry practice, um even some of the artillery units the horse artillery would uh actually unlimber and deploy their guns in this uh, venue. It was so huge. And that building does still exist today on the campus there. It's called Thayer Hall today. It's been repurposed many times over, of course, but uh, it has classrooms and such in it now. But at the time that it was built, it's in, the intent was for it to be a, a, just a huge riding hall, which is uh, kind of amazing that they would invest those dollars uh, for an in, in, in equestrian pursuits.
1: Yeah. At that time. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you talk about, there was lots and lots of leaders that came out of this class and two of the famous ones were, uh, general Eisenhower and, uh, Bradley. Um, right. let's talk about Eisenhower. Cause that's the one we, he was president. He was the commander of the, the invasion at Normandy. Uh, what was his experience like at West point? I mean, what kind of student was he, um, did he play any sports? Just give us an overview sure. of what his experience was as a cadet. Sure.
0: Sure. Interestingly enough, Eisenhower was an excellent athlete. And one of the things that he wanted to do was go to college uh, via his athletic ability. And he wound up going to West Point to play football. And this is after he and his brother um, had made a uh, pact between the two of them, that one would go to college and one would stay in Abilene and work in the local creamery and uh, send money along as he could and help his brother get through school. And then the second one would go. And um, Eisenhower's brother went on to the University of Michigan, and he stayed behind and worked in the creamery and played football at the local high school and then found out that it was possible to get a free, quote-unquote, education (laughs) um, funded by the U.S. government if you were willing to... um, uh, you know give time back after your years at West Point as an officer in the United States Army, and so he pursued that with the intent of uh, of playing football primarily and then he you know he found some challenges there because uh, let 's face it, he was from really what was then kind of a rough and tumble part of the country. Abilene was a town that had been on the old Chisholm trail uh Back in the in the days of the old west, and and um, he had a little bit of an independent spirit. So he goes to West Point, and um, he can't help himself. He's got a great sense of humor, um, makes a lot of friends, but he also engages in some activities that get him into a little bit of trouble. Um, smoking, uh, loves to play cards. Loves to sneak out at night and um, and go to a little town, maybe fifteen miles or so up the Hudson River Valley, and and get coffee and sandwiches and sneak back in. And um, he 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 enjoys uh, just with um, having a little bit of an edge about his uh, educational experience there. And uh, there are a couple of things that uh, that really stand out. One of which he was. Uh, ordered with a with a classmate to report to a uh, junior corporal's op- quarters for some infraction uh, in full dress and tails. Uh, of course the guy didn't say anything about wearing pants, so he and his uh, and his cohort showed up with their nice long tailed coat uh, but no pants and it was uh, it was a comical. Situation for the guy's roommate, but the corporal that ordered them in there didn't think it was funny at all. So, uh, just a little indication of the sense of humor that he had. When he got to West Point, he did play football and and became one of the best backs, running backs, really in the country at the time. Uh, But he did uh, suffer an unfortunate injury in a game against Tufts. And had a knee injury that nearly not only cost him his football career, but nearly cost him his career in the Army. Um, and so after the knee injury, he was not able to play football anymore, but uh, he stayed close to the athletic programs and actually coached some uh, with the junior varsity there and was a cheerleader.
1: Hmm. And uh, what, what was his final rank, class rank? He, he-,
0: um, he was 61st in the class. Uh, which you know, out of 164, put in slightly above, you know, the, the middle of the pack. Maybe um, he really um, amassed quite an impressive number of demerits during his tenure at uh, at West Point. Um, he did display uh, obviously uh, uh, an intellect that uh, had he been more interested and more diligent in pursuing some of his academics uh, uh would have put him higher st- in standing in the class but as it was he he finished 61st in the class and uh, you know i still believe though based on some of the things that we see in his west point career that there there were instructors. There were other people, there were classmates who recognized in him that there was a spark of leadership. There was uh, something about him that maybe set him apart just a little bit from some of the other cadets there at West Point. Um, and that led to his ability to um, advance you know, in the in his post-West Point military career.
1: Yeah, I guess you have to have a little bit of edge uh, to be a successful leader, be able to take a little risk uh, every now and then.
0: Well, and you know, you 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 do have to think that the uh, return is commensurate with the risk that you're willing to take. Sure. And and so when you look at risk versus return, that's absolutely correct. He was willing to take a little bit of risk. He was willing to step out a little bit, um, and in return for that, his abilities were recognized probably more rapidly and more readily. Uh, than others in his peer group um, at the time.
1: Yeah. One of the stories I, I, I love that you, you highlight in uh, Eisenhower's experience at West Point was, I guess there was a tradition where the upperclassmen would sort of haze the younger, the newer cadets. And one of the things was if you ran into them, you're supposed to ask the newer cadet what was his, what was the abbreviate like your previous post? You know, what
0: previous you- uh, previous form of servitude or condition of, of um service something like that yeah, yeah. It, it, was it, was of, it was sort of sort of
1: derogatory right it's sort of
0: yeah yeah
1: yeah well and tell us what happened to Eisenhower where it, he decided he was going to stop doing that
0: well he was uh, out on campus one day and a young cadet who was uh, an underclassman ran into him and uh, and uh kind of knocked him over and Eisenhower kind of got was gruff and abrupt and and uh, and started to dress this young cadet down. And he said, what was your previous condition of servitude? And he, uh, he said, you look like a barber. And the young man said, I was a barber, sir. And when he got back to his room, um, he, he told his roommate, P.A. Hodgson, that he had just belittled a man. Uh, based on what he did for a living and really kind of who he was and what his identity was prior to coming to West Point. Um, And I think it resonated with Eisenhower because if someone that had asked him the question, well, I'm from a a lower-to-middle-class family in Abilene, and I worked in a creamery. And so at that point, Eisenhower said, I vowed never again to display that kind of attitude and to treat other people that way. And that was a great life lesson for him, and I think it carried through in his dealings and his interactions with others um, throughout his military and then his political career and really defined him as one of those things that made him an effective leader.
1: Yeah, he had uh, fantastic people skills.
0: He uh, really did, and a, and a broad grin that was just unforgettable.
1: Yeah. So these young cadets graduated at the time World War I was going on, but Eisenhower and Bradley famously missed out on this war. What was their response to that?
0: Well, at at the time um that World War One was being prosecuted overseas and some of their classmates had gone on to uh to actually be involved in combat and, and uh and receive some decorations for bravery, um uh, both Eisenhower and Bradley remained stateside Bradley was in Butte, Montana, uh, essentially leading guard duty over some copper mines. Um, Eisenhower had various posts as an instructor, and that was one of the things that kept Eisenhower uh, here in the United States was the fact that he was a a, a very good instructor, and, and uh, they put him to use in that regard. Both of these guys were bitterly disappointed. There's no question about that. And they believed that the fact that they had not been in combat, or at least been in France during World War I, was extremely detrimental to their careers. Um, at one time, Bradley kind of uh, bemoaned his whole situation and thought, well, maybe, maybe I'll be able to retire after 20 years in the Army and uh, hopefully reach the rank of lieutenant colonel. And that was about all he felt like he might be able to do. Um, Eisenhower was disappointed. Um, uh, they both felt like they had been kind of relegated to the backwaters of uh, of uh, the military and that their careers were going to take a backseat to um, actually those who had been in combat and been in Europe. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about that, though, is as they continued their military education, at the Infantry School, at the Command and General Staff College, and those types of things, Bradley made a really interesting point. Some of the guys that had been over in in Europe had been exposed to tactics and strategies that were archaic, that in the next war would not be applicable. And in fact, if they continued to ascribe to those, would be a real handicap as far as uh, being able to prosecute another war successfully. But when Bradley got into the classroom he hadn't absorbed any of that because he hadn't been in europe so he had fresh ideas and a fresh perspective on the future which in in a kind of an ironic twist actually helped him
1: interesting so were there yeah. any um uh, graduates of the class that served in world war 1 that showed some distinction
0: absolutely um louis marlet who was the uh, the foremost all-american football player um on the the team at the time of graduation and had the really probably one of the one of the most outstanding reputations just for notoriety uh went to to uh France in World War 1 and was seriously wounded um actually did recover and and received uh decorations for that Charles Ryder who commanded the 34th division um, in the Mediterranean, in the uh, North African and Italian campaigns, uh, received a Distinguished Service Cross in France. Uh, James Van Fleet uh, was a decorated and wounded veteran of combat in World War I uh, when he came home. So um, uh, there were a number of, of people that were involved in the campaigning in World War I. Joseph McNarney was in the Air Corps, Um uh, and, and several of these guys had um, had some um, intense combat experiences during World War I. Others, um, sad to say, were victims of the 1918 flu epidemic and actually died either en route to France or in France of influenza. So, uh, so the, the, to answer your question, yes, there were several that were involved in uh, the fighting in France and that actually were uh, distinguished in their service.
1: For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display, and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year, when using all the app's features, I had a chance to use Rocket Money, and it works. You connect your account to it, and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about, and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money in things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com manliness. Rocketmoney.com manliness. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never frozen meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using factory meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time uh, to, to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try factory meals, head to factorymeals.com slash manliness50 and use code MANLINESS50 to get 50% off. That's code MANLINESS50 at factormeals.com slash manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. You mentioned uh, James Van Fleet. He was—he actually served in several wars, not just World War One. I. I thought that was really—I think he said like five different battles or, or conflicts.
0: Well, you, you think about the the span of time that was involved there. Uh, the Pancho Villa expedition in 1916, World War One, World War Two, Korea, and then the Vietnam era. By that time he was uh basically retired but he did do some studies on the combat efficiency of special forces uh in Southeast Asia uh but James Van Fleet uh if you look at the longevity of his career and and ending it as a four-star general is pretty remarkable he's a great example of perseverance and uh, uh really the will to win kind of was his his uh, mantra Um, He endured some setbacks in his career uh, that most people, I would say, would have um, a great amount of difficulty overcoming. First of all, as he was continuing his educational experience in the classroom, he had always been somewhat challenged, Um, and we all know people like that who are excellent thinkers, great conceptualists, and able to, to um, conceive and execute a plan. But maybe when they sit in the classroom and someone puts a test in front of them, uh, that, that's not their shining moment. And Van Fleet was kind of one of those people. So he completed one of the courses there for, um, for young officers, and was, uh, his file basically said he really is not suited for further education in the U.S. Army. So he kind of had that strike against him early in his career. And then for whatever reason, and there's still some mystery shrouded uh, uh, around this, but for whatever reason there was a story that circulated that George Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, uh, had him confused with another officer but believed that James Van Fleet had a serious drinking problem. And so when he would come up for promotion, uh, that would be held against him erroneously. Um, And so to that end, he was actually a regimental commander in the 4th Infantry Division on D-Day and had not achieved a rank beyond colonel when several of his classmates, obviously by that time, were wearing not one, not two, but uh, three and four stars. And um, so there's a lesson there that once that discrepancy was cleared up, according to all the information that we see, his advancement was rapid. He went from regimental to division to corps commander, and then at the end of his career was a four-star general and commanded the um, 8th Army, U.S. 8th Army forces in Korea. But interestingly enough, he never really acknowledged or said a lot about that misconception that may have existed with Marshall. And uh, another kind of interesting twist to that is that Bradley, um, Joe Collins, who was a 7th Corps commander, and Eisenhower to an extent, each of them. Um, seemed to want to take at least a little bit and maybe more than a little bit of credit for straightening Marshall out as to who exactly Van Fleet was, that they had the, he had the wrong guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, uh, and and I have to mention one thing, too, you that you, you may want to go back and take a look at in the book, but Van Fleet was struggling at West Point. He was having a tough time, and his father wrote a very inspirational letter to him uh, to persevere. Um, encouraging his son during some really, really difficult times to stay the course, to work hard, and that good things would happen. And so I think that that was a really defining moment in Dan Fleet's career, uh, Or he may not have finished West Point at all, but then later in life, as a four-star general, he stood in front of a group of cadets and he said to them, I stand here before you today not suited for further education in the United States Army.
1: Wow. Yeah. I remember that letter and I remember reading it and, and I, it even inspired me. You know, I was like,
0: Well, isn't, isn't that fantastic? I think we need coffee mugs. Yeah. That have that emblazoned on them. So if you ever have a bad day when you hit the door at the office, you know, pick that coffee mug up, take a look at it and say, you know, get tough,
1: get tough. Don't feel sorry for yeah, yourself.
0: Exactly.
1: All right. So, um, a lot of these men uh, ended up in high leadership positions during world war two. Um, generals and commanders and colonels um how do you think their experience at west point shaped them in their leadership in world war ii
0: i think there are a couple of different things here to take a look at first you have the external influence of west point these guys got off the train they walked up the dusty hill to the plane there at west point and their lives changed Everything that they brought with them was essentially taken away and packed up. All their, even their money. These cadets were not allowed to keep currency uh, on their persons. They went to the barber. They were given new clothing. They were assigned a room. They were told where to be and when to be there, what to do. So really, they went from um, from um, being f- pretty much free people. Uh, left to their own devices to a very regimented um, social framework and military framework there at West Point so what they began to find was that they were inculcated into that military um, way of life and it dictated to them several things one was duty honor country the motto of West Point how to work together how to achieve goals how to take orders how to understand what a chain of command is, um, how to deal with adversity that's forced upon you externally. Then look at the internal side of it. There's a battle within each one of us when we enter a challenging environment like that. And we get to make a decision as to whether we want to stay and play or, or pack it up and go home. And um, each of these guys battled that in one way or another. It was more difficult for some than it was for others. Some just reveled in it, just thrived in that regimented environment. Others had to take, uh, you know, a step back, maybe, and and look at this thing and say, you know, this is physically demanding, this is mentally demanding and stressful. Uh, the academic load uh, is tremendous, and I don't get to go home for two years, so. So you've got the internal and the external forces at play there, and those who were able to get through four years of West Point had achieved more than just getting a college education. They had been inculcated into a way of life, and that experience helped them to understand how to show their leadership skills, how to demonstrate um, yeah, you know, a a capability to solve a problem, and then also to work together and build a team to get a job done. So, West Point obviously was instrumental in their lives through um, the way they looked at the world, uh, discipline, uh, again honor, duty, and country, and uh, seeing an objective, being assigned an objective, or assigning others to an objective, and then achieving that objective.
1: Did, do you think they developed a camaraderie with each other that would be beneficial later in World War II? Like they understood, you know, how each other ticked, and so they were able to get along better.
0: I think there's no question that they did. And when you consider the span of time between 1915 to 1940, you're looking at 25 years. These career Army officers by that time had known one another for about 30 years. And Eisenhower was born in 1890, so in 1940 he was 50 years old. These guys were approaching the mid-to-latter midterm in their careers. Some of them had left the Army and been called back um, to service during World War II, but the core group that remained officers in the U.S. Army um, knew one another pretty darn well. and uh, and they had that common bond of having been at West Point in the class of 1915 and beyond that, those in the classes that surrounded them, the ones that were immediately preceding and immediately following the class of 1915, all of them knew one another pretty well. And interestingly enough, they placed such a great emphasis on athletics and on the team building that goes on in athletics that that had an influence on the choices that Eisenhower and Bradley both made um, in assigning corps commanders, division commanders, and other officers who took on certain areas of responsibility because they said, hey, that guy played football at West Point. Um, That says something about them. Or I played baseball with that guy. We competed together. And, um, both of them made statements later in their, in their lives about how important it was to have been an athlete, um, how important it was to have played football at West Point and that that made a difference in the military careers of a lot of these guys.
1: Interesting. Uh, so after World War II, um, what do the graduates, what do these graduates do with their lives? I mean, I, we know Eisenhower went on to be a, the president of Columbia, correct?
0: He did. Right after the war, he became the president of Columbia University. And then he
1: became president of the U.S.
0: That's right. Became a two-term president of the United States. Um, Bradley became the chairman of the Bull of a Watch Company. Um, Both of them, of course, after the war, were instrumental in the formation of NATO, Um, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, those types of things. They held some very uh, position of great responsibility uh, during the early days of the Cold War. Uh, several of these guys uh, went on. Well, Joseph McNarney went on to um, Consolidated Vaulty. He was a, an executive with a defense contractor. Um, you know, Van Fleet uh, kind of retired quietly after the Korean War uh, and uh, lived on a, on a, a farm in Florida and uh, worked off and on for the government and various projects and such. But uh, but these guys were successful in business and in industry after the war and in government, uh, in large part due to their discipline and due to their, their military background and bearing and, and what they had learned at West Point. Um, several of these guys uh, went on to make some pretty significant contributions in the post-war world. So, um, and many of them, once they, once they reached their, their retirement age in the military, retired quietly to uh, uh, you know, their farms or their homes. Um, one, one who's very interesting is Hubert Harmon, who actually was instrumental in the founding and uh, the building of the United States Air Force Academy. Harman, um, Harmon, um, actually a few decades later, was named the father of the Air Force Academy. And so he spent a great deal of his time um, in, a, in the twilight of his career uh, devoted to that endeavor.
1: Did they stay in touch with each other after in the, the twilight years of their life?
0: You know, it's really remarkable. Uh, West Point is big uh, on that camaraderie that's developed while you're there. And then consistently in bringing classes back uh, for reunions, or having reunions, or having associations in other cities. And uh, interestingly enough, these guys consistently were able to have reunions to stay in touch with one another, uh, to know one another's families, um, even even to the extent that uh, you know Bradley's um, daughter married Hal Buchema's son. Uh, one another one of their classmates, so a son and daughter of classmates married and uh yeah they they stayed in touch with one another, they knew one another well, and you can see when you do re- when ha- having done the research uh that they had an active newsletter that circulated among them, and they consistently reported back to the association of graduates so that there was information exchanged and you know it's funny it's all the way through it. Um the, the secretary, whoever it was at the time, would always say, you guys got to get me your new addresses. You guys got to get me a letter and tell me something that's going on in your life so that we can put it in the newsletter, you know, just like we would today. Mm. Uh, and and it, was, it was certainly a situation where they stayed in touch. Uh, they felt that camaraderie and that common bond, and, and it lasted throughout their lives.
1: Uh, So we've uh, discussed a few lessons that we can take from the graduates of 1915, but are there any big other lessons you think that men can take from West Point 1950 on how to be a better man?
0: I think so. Uh, I I think if we consider the circumstances that these men found themselves in, uh, they certainly were given a great opportunity being accepted to West Point. But in order to even be accepted, they had to pass a couple of rigorous tests. They had to have an appointment from a congressman uh, uh, or a member of government, uh, and they had to be physically fit, so they had to set some goals and achieve those goals early in life, even to get to West Point. Um, once they were in, they were there, they had to work hard and persevere to get to the graduation day. Um, once they graduated, they were presented with a world that was in turmoil, and you know you, you can argue that events shape men. Uh, into what they will become, but men have to have something that is shapeable. And so I think in both cases, these, these folks used the assets that were available to them to the best of their ability to achieve what they achieved. And so there are a couple of lessons there. One is perseverance. The other is take what you got, identify what your skill set is or what your best attributes are, and leverage those to the maximum to achieve all that you can achieve within that sphere. Um, and, and, and I think you also, all the way through that, you have a common thread of integrity, um, a common thread of duty and loyalty. And you know, those things sound uh, outnoted sometimes or, or a little bit corny, uh, but when you get right down to it, those are the traits that are most admirable in men. They are also the traits that are lasting in men. And those are the traits that adult men try to convey to younger men. And so I think in this way, when we look at the class of 1915 individually and collectively, they demonstrate some of the very best, timeless, traditional traits that men want to emulate.
1: Fantastic. Well, Michael, where can people find out more about your work?
0: You can find out more about my work in a a couple of different ways. Um, There are a number of books available um, through uh, various sources. Zenith Press certainly has West Point 1915. Um, I do have another book coming out on the Civil War. Um, March 1st it'll be available and it's called Appomattox the last days of Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. That'll be available through Zenith Press, um, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, various outlets. There will um, will certainly have uh, books that I've that I've written in the past available. I'm also the editor of WW2 History Magazine, which has a circulation of about 75,000 and um, has been uh, been around for a number of years. We publish some excellent stories related to World War II um, around the globe, and uh, it's a great little publication, and uh, we're out there and appreciate anyone taking a minute to kind of take a look at what we're all about.
1: Fantastic. Well, Michael Haskew, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you, Brett. I really appreciate you taking the time and having an interest in the book.
1: Our guest today was Michael Haskew. He's the author of the book, West Point 1915. Eisenhower Bradley in the Class the Stars Fell On. You can find that book on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you listen to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher or whatever, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review or a rating. That would help other people find out the show. I don't care what you give us. Just give us your honest review. Uh, I'd really appreciate that. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And I'd really appreciate it if you also check out store.artofmanliness.com where you can find Art of Manliness products. Uh, Again, we just launched a journal inspired by Benjamin Franklin's Virtue Journal that he developed for himself as a young man. It's a way you can track your progress in becoming a better more virtuous man. It's pretty cool. Uh, so go check it out. You can't find it anywhere else. at store.artofmanliness.com. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.
0: Goodyear Auto Service takes
1: pride in caring for your car. Get in the groove with Goodyear's technician tips. Number 13, inspect your tread. Like a podcast, you're an investigative journalist finding the cracks in the case. And number 64, pump your brakes before you crank that debate. Coming in for routine brake checks are essential for your safety. Goodyear Auto Service, here for the bumps in the road. Get more tips at GoodyearAutoService.com. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.